Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, along with CPA Allison Rife Martin, Philip interviews business attorney Megan Fouché. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. And now, here's Philip. All right, we are back with another episode of the Ask Philip podcast. And isn't the 20s, I'm calling it not even 2021 or 2020. Like, this is just the 20s. The 20s are off to a crazy start. We need to go ahead and just jump forward to 2030 um, and, and, and start this whole decade back over. But... I have two two guests today, two experts in their field. Y'all know Allison Rife Martin already. She is the best CPA in Texas, soon to be the U.S. Um, as she expands uh, around the around the U.S. and to and today uh, I've been practicing this, so I'm gonna get it right. We have Megan Fouché. What's the background of the name Fouché? So it's French, but it's just spelled very weird because it got messed up coming into the United States. Yeah, yeah. My, 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 I, I thought it was that because my folks are from um, um, Louisiana and my, my mom's maiden name is Malvo, right? So okay. I, I was like, it sounds kind of like, you know, Frenchish, you know, French French spell things different. Yeah. Um, but but no, so we're, and we're talking and you're a business uh, law expert. And so we're going to talk about business law today. Sounds good. All righty. So let's let's roll into it. Wait, before we get started, everybody's good now. Y'all, family's safe. Everybody's healthy. We are great shape. Yeah, it, I've heard some crazy stories this morning about busted pipes. Like I have, I have one client who her pipes busted, but it didn't bust in the house. It busted under the house, and the only way she can catch it was like she just was walking around outside around the house, and she just saw like water because everything had melted. And she just saw like water building up there and but it's like it wasn't a lot of water so she asked somebody to check it out and she's like oh yeah the pipes under the house burst i'm like what how would you even know that yeah i was on a call with um a client this week and we were supposed to close selling his company last friday but with all the power outages and we're on the closing call and he beeps over because his neighbor beeps in and he's worried because he's gone to the office that's where power is and his neighbor says that there's water like shooting out the side of his house so um that was my story for the week. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. Speaking of stories, let's talk about your origin story. So, how did you get into business law? Um. So actually, I went to, or I did a business major in school, and I came out in '08 when um, all the investment banks were crashing. All my friends who we were getting our offers revoked from the investment banks, and I still had two offers left. And I asked someone I knew which one I should take, which investment bank wasn't going to go under. And um, he said, well, why don't you come work for me at this new startup we just invested in? So I said, okay. So I came down to Dallas and I did that. And that startup was connected to the auto industry, which was the next industry to tank. And so I was in their finance and accounting group. And when they did massive layoffs, I had done a joint project with the legal team. And so they laid everybody off. But for me, they asked if I would go work in the legal group. Um, so of course I said yes, because everybody else was getting laid off. So that was my introduction to law and business law and Decided to go to law school instead of business school, so here I am. That's a crazy we were all story. The better for it. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
there's a lot of things that go into selling businesses, right? In my experience, and Allison and and and, and Megan, y'all probably seen the same. It, it's 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 like an emotional process, and they want to sell, they don't want to sell, they want to sell, they don't want to sell. So, like, when should somebody first start thinking about um, selling their business? Like, when should they start planning about it, thinking about it, start talking to their CPA and their attorney? I was going to say, honestly, I would probably say call the attorney, but it's you should have a plan well before the day you decide to pull the trigger. So I'm thinking like two to five years before you plan to sell. Like, what's your exit strategy? Would you agree, Megan? Yeah, um, I definitely think the earlier you start, the better, right? And keeping your due diligence up to date, making sure you have your contract, your corporation in place. Um, financials, right? You've got to have all your financials. So you've got to work with your accountant on that, but definitely the earlier, the better. Okay. And then, and what are my options for, for, for selling? Cause, cause a lot, a lot of people yeah. hadn't thought through all the options. They think, what do you mean? They just, I just sell it and they give me a check. Yeah. So, um, as far as the structure of your transaction, you can just sell it for cash, right? If they'll give you cash up front, that's great. Um, sometimes they'll want to hold a portion back just in case, for liabilities that happen after closing that were the sellers on happened on the seller's watch. Um, sometimes they'll want to pay pursuant to a promissory note, right? So that we call that like seller financing where they pay a portion of the purchase price at closing and then a portion over time pursuant to a promissory note. You can also do what's called an earnout, And these can be helpful if sellers not getting the price that they want. So let's say they want a million dollars for their business, but sellers only willing to give them 900. I mean, buyers only willing to give them 900,000. You can say, Hey, you know, if I meet these goals after closing, if the seller is going to stay on, usually they stay on for a transition period and work for the buyer. If I meet these certain goals, can I earn that hundred thousand dollars? Right. So whenever there's a price difference in what buyers willing to pay and sellers um, wanting an earnout can be an, an easy way to fill that gap. I always tell people that you have to be happy with what you're getting at close because nothing ever is guaranteed that you're going to get after close. Um, so that's really important that, you know, you're okay if you don't get anything after what you get at close. The other, another structure option is taking what we call rollover equity in the buyer. So maybe that $1 million, you get 900000 in cash at closing and you get $100,000 worth of equity in the buyer company instead of that cash. Um, and the good thing about that is it's a contribution and exchange assets for the stock. And so you don't have to pay taxes at that time on the $100,000 that you roll over. You, you do have to pay taxes eventually, but it may be when the buyer sells. So you roll that 100,000 into buyer, it grows in value. And then you sell it five years later when the buyer sells. Um, and so you've, haven't paid taxes on that growth while you've had that equity. Um, and so that can be a tax efficient way to make money on your money. What have you, what have you typically advise clients to do? Like what's the most common option you do? Guess we were thinking the same question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Cash up front is the best, right? Um, Cause now they have to come after you for those indemnities. Um, so definitely cash up front, but sometimes you can get, a larger purchase price if you're willing to finance it or have an earn out, that type thing. Um, it also depends on what industry you're in, whether those are standard. And if it's a seller's or buyer's market, 
So if it's a seller's market, for instance, right now, the healthcare roll-up industry, extreme high demand for those. And so they don't have to, um, the buyers aren't doing, or not the buyers aren't doing promissory notes, the buyers aren't doing holdbacks. Um, Those healthcare companies are in such demand that they're willing to pay all cash up front. And and is that part of what you as the attorney uh, keep a pulse on the market for is, is what industries, you know, like what's normal and not normal for, and I know there's a lot of variables within the industry, but you're kind of saying, Hey, for your business, this is what I'm seeing. Right. And is is that kind of, you know, a lot. Yeah. and, And that's why it's important. I think to get your attorney involved in the letter of intent phase versus down the road, um, because you're kind of setting your anchor for the deal and anything you ask for later is kind of seen as a retrade of the deal. But as long as before you sign that LOI, um, you can negotiate as much as you want without being seen as a retrade. And so myself or accountants know a lot about the numbers and what they're seeing in deals also. Um, but we can tell you, you know, no, if you keep shopping this around, you're going to find somebody who's not going to hold back on the purchase price. Or I may say, nope, that's pretty standard for, you know, where we're seeing things right now. What are the biggest mistakes owners make when going through the process? Not having their books in good shape, frankly, is what I was going to say. <laughs> not knowing what your financial position looks like to be able to ask for what you're looking for. And again, not getting the attorney involved, frankly. Um, well, th- thanks for that, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, too, uh, forgetting to tell the accountant or the attorney things they need to know. For example, uh, a client I worked with forgot to disclose an EPA settlement. Well, that's kind of a big deal when you're trying to sell. You know, whoops, I forgot to tell you that part. Oh, huh. <laughs> yeah. And some of the some of the mistakes I see, you know, going back to the LOI, I know I keep talking about the LOI, but when I do receive LOIs that are signed without bringing an accountant or an attorney in, because an accountant will also catch this when they re- review your LOI. So you know, I, you can talk to either one, but I can't tell you how many LOIs I see that, um, don't address who's taking the accounts receivable. Don't address who's assuming the accounts payable. Um, some companies have a ton wrapped up in capital leases, which is not financing of equipment. They it's as a lease, but a lot of times on your book, it'll be, um, with the debt items. And Allison can probably explain that more, but the LOI might say, you know, all debts are to be paid at closing. Well, if you've got a bunch of capital leases, they're technically legally a lease, but a lot of times on your books, they're a debt. And so are they assuming that seller is going to pay all of those off at closing or is buyer going to assume those leases? So that can massively affect the purchase price and your take-home amount that you get at close. And I can't tell you how many LOIs don't address who's taking the accounts receivable. Um, you know, is buyer taking those or does seller get to keep those? And these capital lease issues, those type things. And and again, you know, your accountant or your attorney will look at that in 10 seconds and tell you what's going on. Because we don't want to get to closing or further down the road before we know the answer to this question. Yeah, so I'm assuming selling a business is way tougher than selling a house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. I was going to say probably another thing that a lot of business owners make mistakes with is not having a true valuation of their business before they sell it and taking the emotional piece out of it. So if you think it's worth a million, but 
the industry says it's worth half a million, well, then you have to make decisions there too. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, and I'll, I'll throw another one in. Now, I'm just going to tell the story. I, 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 for real, I had a client who um, uh, they were in the preliminary stages of selling their business. And, you know, let's just say the company, I'm just going to make up some numbers to keep the innocent protected. But let's say the company said they were going to offer them $8 million. And so I was like, well, I mean, after taxes, this is what it's going to look like. And I was like, the company's already paying you like this amount of money. I don't know where you're going to get that same income. Uh, for and, it, and, it, and the, the backstory was at the time, she had somebody who she trusted running the business. And she really, you know, she really was, she was already retired, right? And so um, so I was like, well, why don't you just keep doing what you're doing? Like, are you doing what you want to do? Yeah, are you traveling? Yeah, are you, you're not going to generate this income from this pile of money to the taxes when you retire. So I... I wouldn't sell at this price for sure, but you know they were they were just excited about like the number, like it was a you know it was a relatively large number, and uh, uh, and so I guess I killed the deal. Not I killed the deal, but you know uh, after we had the conversation, I was like, she's like, yeah, 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 that's that's why. So add your add your wealth manager in there too. I'm throwing myself in the hat. Yeah. <laughs> no, and your wealth manager, I know I was you, I was talking about different structures earlier. Um, and your wealth manager is really good to talk to when I was talking about rollover equity. Um, because they can, that's where you, you know, take some of your purchase price and you roll it into the buyer. They can actually look at, you know, those tax numbers and are you better off putting your money and rolling it into buyer or putting it in something else and where are you going to make more money um, and looking at those numbers for you and which structure to try and push for and negotiate for. Um, because I don't actually do the numbers on it. I just know what your options are. But I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation because I, I um, the, the, the question we asked before, how do you know which, which, which structure to do? It, I was like, that is pretty tough. And I, and I would imagine it's tough to do without really, uh, you know, your CPA, your attorney and your wealth manager. I mean, you kind of need everybody at the table because one of them alone is tough to, you know, answer the question. Let's see. Big mistakes, big mistake. Well, I've got a couple more big mistakes. Yes, please, please. Yes, please. Please. <laughs> Talk about all of them, all the mistakes you see. Um, And so some of these are what I would call big mistakes. And then some are just, you know, going to cause you a hassle. They're not necessarily a mistake. They can easily be fixed. So those would be like keeping your contracts, you know, in one place, um, knowing where your lease is, all these due diligence items that are going to be asked for, keeping your corporate minutes and meetings, um, keeping your cap table, that's, you know, who owns what interest, keeping that together. But the big mistakes that cause big issues are, when you start your company, right, if you have any intellectual property, a lot of times that entity isn't formed yet. And so if me, Megan, you know, and my partner, Allison, we don't have anything formed yet. I come up with some IP and then we start this company, but I never actually contribute that intellectual property to the company. I still own that IP and not the company, which if the company doesn't do well, it's not going to matter. But when the company does well and goes to sell, Whoever that buyer is, is going to want proof that the company owns that intellectual property, which if I'm still there and I'm going to sell, great. But let's say Allison bought me out at some point. I can basically hold the company hostage now because I own all that intellectual property. And I've actually seen where, you know, a founder has gone by the wayside in the last 10 years. They're not with the company anymore, but they never contributed that the software that they wrote to the company. 
that became an issue. Another thing I see messed up, which is the ownership of what they're paying value for, right? So that's why I'm saying big mistake. A lot of people think that when they hire someone, they pay someone to make something for them. That company, they think that they own it. But here's the deal. Unless you have a contract saying so, if it's an independent contractor, then that independent contractor owns what they made. Mm. So you have to be very careful with your contracts. Whenever you hire a contractor, you have to make sure that you own what they are making because the default rule otherwise is the independent contractor owns it and you only have a license to use it. So when you go to buy, the buyer is going to look at that and they want to know that you own what you're selling them. And there's a lot of times that people don't actually own, not on purpose, but they don't own what they're selling the buyer. Um, that can be a big issue. Sound like an expensive mistake. How, how often do you see people like lose their documents? Because that's what I'm afraid of. I'm like, man, you know, what if... You know, oh, for due diligence purposes. Yeah, Yeah, like just any of the business documents. I, You know, I have mine in three different places, but... Yeah, I'm, usually I'm, someone can find it. Or you can go ask the other party for it and hopefully they have it. But I have seen, you know, sellers have to go to their customers and say, which you don't want to have to tell them you're selling before you have to, but trying to get people to re-sign contracts because they can't find copies. Uh, I was going to say, that seems like, why would I, what's my motivation to sign the contract, you know? So so, so this brings a good point. I mean, even if somebody um, is not ready to sell their business, I mean, do, do you ever get people who reach out to you and say, you know, hey, Megan, can you come just look at my business and make sure I got all my ducks in a row so that, whatever, 10 years from now when I'm ready to sell, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking everything appropriately or I have everything set up appropriately? No, but I wish they would. <laughs> um, I will say, so my husband's company, I ran all the legal for that. And we knew we were building it to sell it. And... When the buyers came in, it was a private equity group. They couldn't figure out how we answered the due diligence and everything so quickly. And it was because I kept everything. I knew exactly what they were going to ask for, right? And I had it all organized in folders. So um, it's not a huge deal, but just at least know where everything is and keep copies of everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but and like and I guess like you said, it, it probably also will help the value of selling because if you're organized, it makes you look, you know, more credible, right? I mean, small stuff like that. I mean, I know I know I would judge a company if I'm like, well, you're unorganized. Maybe I should buy you for less because you can definitely impress them. That's for sure. How long am I open for lawsuits uh, from operational mistakes uh, after I after I sell this? I think you mentioned term you use clawback. Was it clawback or something? Some, some oh, term. Survi- survivability. Basically, there's going to be one large document, either a stock purchase agreement or an asset purchase agreement by which the buyer buys the company from the seller. And this document is basically an allocation of risk. So typically we say, hey, seller is going to take take everything that happened before closing and they're going to be responsible for that. And buyer is going to take everything from after closing and they're going to be responsible for that. And so... Basically, we call that indemnification. So seller is going to indemnify buyer for anything that happened before closing. So in other words, on seller's watch, but buyer has to pay for it, right? So something happens before closing, but the lawsuit, the employee doesn't sue until after closing, right? Well, that's seller's fault. So seller should have to pay for that. But we don't want seller to be on the hook forever, right? Into the future. So that length of time 
that seller is on the hook after closing for things that they did, even if they didn't know about them. Um, that's what we call survivability. And so, you know, kind of like I was saying earlier, with the, whether it's a buyer market or a seller market, you can negotiate those terms. So that link. The other way you can um, that we limit indemnification is what we call caps and baskets. So it would be buyer can only seek indemnification for two years after closing and only up to a million dollars. And they can only come after you for any amount that's over $10,000. So $10,000 would be your basket. So your claims have to reach $10,000 before they can come after you. They can't go over a million dollars and they can't make a claim after two years. Mm. Right. So that way you've got some parameters and you know the type of liability that you're setting yourself up for. And again, that's I like to negotiate these caps and baskets in survival in the LOI, because you're definitely setting your anchor, especially if you've got multiple buyers. Um, because this is another big item that does affect your purchase price. So what can they claw back from you after closing, right? For um for liabilities that happen pre-close. Um, and so those are good to try and negotiate in your LOI early on, um, just to get an idea of what kind of liability you're going to have or need to set aside for at closing. Is there insurance that you can buy for that? So if I'm selling my business, can I say, oh, I'm exposed for $2 million bucks. Let me go buy a policy to cover that if, if they find anything. Yeah, and there is reps and warranty insurance. Um, it's not cheap usually done based off of a percentage of your transaction um and you get a whole nother legal team involved right because now the insurance has their legal team in there doing their due diligence on the company so you have to decide whether you're going to do it early um because you don't want the legal team coming in and changing all the documents afterward and you have to decide whether you're willing to pay for it um i think you know, it's only really done on mid mid to large size transactions. And I want to say it can be like 6% of your purchase price. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So. what's And what's the range of a mid size transaction? I'm trying to, speaking from experience, I think I've only seen reps and warranties insurance. Just me personally on transactions that are selling for 35 million and up. Otherwise, I think people don't think it's worth the price. So if if you if if I felt that the insur- the reps and warranty insurance was too high, what would you recommend I do to mitigate my risk? And so that's when you would add the caps, baskets, survivability. We're also trying to when you make all these representations and warranties about your company in this purchase document, we're trying to limit what they say. So rather than saying your financials are 100% absolutely correct that you gave us, we say they're materially, um, or they substantially represent the company, right? Without any material inaccuracies. That way we leave some wiggle room. So we're trying to create those type of um, differences when we go in and change your documents. So there, the company has no litigation. We change that to um, the company has no litigation and has no knowledge of future possible litigation, right? Rather than speaking in absolutes. Um, yeah. So we're trying to create those differences. Yeah. No, that's that. The, it's funny how we keep thinking the same thing, Alex, because we sold, we sold our car 
We bought a new car and sold the old one. And I was like, man, I want to think of, I just want to think of everything that's wrong with the car, you know, you know, not even from a legal standpoint, but just from a good business standpoint. And I was like, and then as she was buying, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, this part right here, you know, the glove compartment when you pull it out, right? But I'm like, man, imagine selling a business. Like that was just a car. So if I like yeah. sold a business, I'd be like, man, I, man, I hope I'm not leaving anything out that, you know, is, is quote unquote broken in the company, you know? Right. What are the trade-offs uh, I need to consider when deciding how to sell my business? Do you want it first off the emotional aspect of it? Am I really ready to sell? Second off, do I know what my financial, my finances look like? Do I have my, a good understanding of my business that I can afford to sell or am I really understanding the true value of my business? Mm-hmm. That's what I would think. <laughs> Anything to add, Megan? Um, I think you, yeah, I think you mentally as a seller have to be ready to give up that control especially when you're going to go work for the buyer afterwards. I think that can be um, difficult going from running the show to having a boss. Hmm. Um, And so, and one thing, you know, we look at depending on what your role in that new company is going to be. And if you're going to have ownership or sit on the board, that type of thing, what control do you still want to have in the buyer? Or you may not have control, right? But you may have some veto decisions or decisions over certain aspects of the business. And it's really important that if you're going to have an earnout, right? So you're trying to achieve a certain goal in the next year while you're working there and still running the business so that you can achieve that earnout. We we want to, we want you to be able to still make certain decisions that help you achieve that earnout. Right. So we don't want them hindering the business and then you you don't achieve your earnout because you weren't able to make certain decisions. So we'll also negotiate, you know, your ability to continue to make certain decisions, at least until that earnout period is over. Pretty common in CPA firm sales where they want this, the old CPA to stick around to ensure a, a good transition. So I would agree with you on that one. Yeah. And that would make sense. To, that would make a lot of sense to me. It's. And 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 this, I, I say one more question. The other one's super easy. I promise it's not a long question, and it might be even more than the statement. But like, d- don't don't y'all feel? Cause I, I, and I'm saying this because I think people should be more proactive proactive with attorneys and CPAs specifically when they're thinking about this. I, I think about my business, and one thing I'm going to do, you know, fairly soon after this conversation is is you y'all know how Robert Kiyosaki has those quadrants. You know, you have. Um, Self-employed, business owner, assets, liability. I forget the four quadrants. I'm messing it up. But And most people think they're a business owner, but they're really self-employed. And so even if you don't want to sell, I feel like to get to that business owner side, you have to have a business that's set up to where you can sell it tomorrow if, if, if you wanted to, if you have a really good business. And I think about that. And, and there, I have quite a few, you know, um, entrepreneur clients who are thinking the same way they're like I don't want to create a business that I work for right I want to create a business that works for me and I feel like you know you need to have these things in place already like now even if you don't want to sell because right it forces you to operate like a like a business and not a self-employed person I mean am I I mean do does anybody do that <laughs> other than private equity I mean always operate like they're going to sell yeah I think a lot of people don't until they know they want to sell, Mm. right? And then you may have a problem. For instance, Allison sent me, you know, a client and they had, um, I'll make this part up so it's anonymous, 
but they had a procurement business, right? And they own the office land. And then he wants to buy, he has another piece of land that he's put in the same company, even though they don't use it for that company. Well, now he wants to start a hunting lodge on that piece of land. And it's going to be in the same business. And Allison, you know, calls me and says, hey, can we, you know, separate these businesses out and, you know, let's work together and get it done tax-free, right? So we can give them a holding company so it flows through to one tax return. But we need to have your, you know, heavy equipment procurement company and your hunting lodge in two separate entities. And a lot of that, one, Allison's going to say it's, you know, for, so she doesn't go crazy and she can run two separate books much easier. But for me, when you want to sell, if you've got both of these in the same entity, then we're trying to separate out assets and liabilities and all your liabilities are in one entity because you've been running it out of one entity. So it's really, you know, your structure from the beginning, especially if you've got multiple businesses, it's important to get it structured right and separately. And we can still make it easy, you know, work with Allison and make it easy from an accounting perspective. But legally, we need to separate things out. Last question. This is a hard question. What's your favorite sport? My favorite sport to play is volleyball. Um, played volleyball my whole life. My favorite sport to watch, I love watching tennis. Huh. Um, and then I, I, lo- like, I loved watching Andre Agassi growing up. He, uh, was, he, he was the man, wasn't he? He was my favorite. And I still I, like, I love, I love watching Venus and Serena. I love that Serena came back from playing after having a baby. I think that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And she's just a good role model too. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I saw this past week, I'm forgetting her name, the one that is, you know, um, they're, they're, they're trying to like pit them against each other, but it's really like, they're, they're like, they're doing a really good job saying, but we're, but yeah, I'm happy for her. Um, the, the half Japanese, half black lady, um, but she did something this week that was like amazing, and I haven't she read up on Serena. it. Didn't she beat Serena? That's what it was. But and this is her second time beating her, right? Isn't like the Australian Open or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it was. It was something I hadn't huh. read up on. But but Naomi. They, Naomi, yeah. 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 So. Um. So what's your favorite sport, Philip? So man, it's it's so my. This has evolved because I got old. It used to be basketball. Basketball is my first love. And, okay. I, and I had to give up basketball because when I turned 30, like the rule when you're 30 is you don't play hard on defense. That's like impossible for me when it's when the game's on the line. Like I play hard, and so I hurt myself too much, so I have to quit playing basketball. <laughs> uh, and so I, so I don't like to watch it as much either because I'm like, I'm not even playing it. Who cares? But I watch it in the playoffs. But it's, it's really I never play football, but I like watching football the most. For, yeah, my, my favorite two things to watch is boxing matches, Muay Thai matches, and football, right? And if you consider boxing and Muay Thai sports, which, which they are, you know, those would be my top, you know, number ones that I watch equally. Yeah. yeah. And Allison? And I was able to woo my husband because of baseball, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's my reason. I wooed my husband on a bicycle. He's a cyclist. And so when I showed off, when I showed up in cycling shorts for our bike ride for our second date, he was like, oh, when she said she likes to ride, she was serious. Wow. <laughs> he, was, he used to ride semi-professional, and I didn't know that at the time. Um, so, yeah, so now we do triathlons and ride a bunch together. But he said he knew I was the one when I 
showed up with cycling shorts on for our second date. Try at the Those aren't very attractive, but. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It worked. <laughs> I know, right? That's, that's what I'm, I'm not a cyclist, but I, I do the Peloton, which I'm like a, you know, I'm like a wimpy cyclist. Yeah. Only for the winter time. When the winter's up, I'm off the Peloton. I'm back running. But I, I definitely appreciate y'all um, coming out, hanging out, providing your expertise, especially on this day back after last week. Um, I hope you know. I hope everything has worked worked out well for your family and people you know. And um, yeah, thanks for hanging out. Uh, let everybody know, Allison and Megan, where everybody can reach out if they're interested in you know, starting the process or thinking about their business and getting it ready for selling, whether it's next week or 10 years from now? Um, so my website is fouchebusinesslaw.com. Fouché is F-O-O-S-H-E-E. It looks like Fouché. Um, and then my email is Megan at fouchebusinesslaw.com. And mine is Allison at rifemartinaccounting.com. And my website is rifemartincpa.com. Well, y'all enjoy the rest of your week, and uh, we'll talk soon. Those of you who haven't been at my website, go to StonehillWealthManagement.com. Click on the 401k tab. We got a Stonehill 401k service that you've probably heard about. It's great for businesses that are small businesses, businesses between zero and maybe 150 employees. Uh, we provide love and service to the employees about how to plan and invest for retirement and a whole host of other uh, benefits that we give. It's all on the site. Check it out, stonehill401k.com. We create startup plans and help with selecting the investments and educating and advising our clients on how to invest and how to best reach their retirement goals. If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. That's StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.